Hi there and welcome to Vroom, your weekly motorsport fix with me, Michael Hill. Two more great guests lined up this week on the Vroom podcast. Firstly, I chat to Tristan Finocchiaro, who dials in from Midlands. And a little bit later on, we speak to James Rispoli, the American now living in the Netherlands. And he is talking to us about his championship winning season in the American Flat Track Series. It's a rather quick review of the last seven days in the motorsport world this week, predominantly focused on MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3. The final round of the championship took place in Portimao. Uh, race wins going to Ralph Fernandez, Remy Gardner and Miguel Oliveira in Moto3, Moto2 and MotoGP respectively. In terms of the world championships, well, Joan Mir was already crowned uh, world champion in Valencia in terms of the MotoGP class for Suzuki. Enea Bastianini, he became champion in Moto2 and Albert Arenas winning the Moto3 World Championship. Heart-stopping moments in Moto2 and Moto3 throughout those two races in Portimao. A fantastic way to end the season. Ducati, well, they may not have won the, the Drivers' uh, Riders' Championship, uh, but they did win the Constructors' Championship. So uh, Constructors' Championship going to Ducati and the Suzuki X-Star team winning the team award in MotoGP. Not much else to report. Uh, Eric Granado, uh, who made his debut in World Superbike in Estoril, he's of course riding for Honda in the Brazilian Championship. He took his fifth win of the season. Still two races to go in the Brazilian Superbike Championship in early December. The Australian Superbike Championship, well, they've been given the green light. They will race their final round at Wakefield Park over the first weekend of December. Six races there uh, added to the three races that were already run at Phillip Island earlier in the year. So nine races uh, in total that will decide the Australian Superbike Championship. And the only other real news is that uh, the World Rally Championship, that ends at Monza in a couple of weeks' time with the news that Frankie Morbidelli, who finished second overall in the MotoGP World Championship, he will make his WRC debut for the Hyundai Rally Team Italia. Up next on the Vroom podcast, we chat to Tristan Finocchiaro, a name that uh, some of our listeners will be familiar with. He's a former front runner in the British uh, Supersport 300 Championship. I think they still call it that. Maybe it's a different name now. Um, but of course, uh, a former rider, of course, in the World Supersport 300 Championship as well. Tristan, thanks for uh, for getting out of bed super early this morning to have a chat to us. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really good. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm all right. A little bit cold and uh, just uh, fingers crossed that we come out of lockdown in time that uh, that Santa can come and deliver me all my presents because it would be a pretty disappointing <laughs> Christmas if I didn't get a, a sack full of presents this year, that's for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be good to go for some Spain testing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So again, just for the benefit of those that are new to the podcast, uh, Tristan Finocchiaro, uh, a young up-and-coming rider, you've had quite a good career considering, again, you're relatively young in terms of, uh, of age, etc. You've had a couple of seasons behind you in the World Supersport 300 Championship. Before we talk about that and before we talk about the last couple of seasons, which has seen you move into, uh, into Superstock, let's turn the clock back. How did you get in, into racing? 
Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, it kind of, it just sort of happened. Um, we got, there was a big mini motor craze going on in Italy when I was a kid. And obviously with my family being Italian, I spent a lot of time in Italy. Um, and you, we'd sort of, you know, you, you like go into a supermarket and they'd have like mini motos, like on a, on a big stand, like just in the front of a supermarket and stuff like that. Um, so we always thought about getting one. We ended up getting one eventually um, just for fun. We didn't think of anything of it, just just like to mess around on. Um, eventually ended up taking, it was just like a little shitty Chinese thing. We ended up taking it to um, to uh, a little go-kart track. Um, and then when we did that, we saw like all the all the lads on, you know, proper specced out Italian um, mini motos and stuff like that and uh, got a little bit jealous bought one of them and ended up racing and it just sort of snowballed and stoneballed and then you know it got more expensive and more expensive as it went on you were one of the the first riders in in the uk to make the move into the world super sport 300 championship which began obviously back in in 2017 it was yourself alex murley chris taylor there was a couple of names that were, were really really young you kind of moved away from riding in the uk was that a difficult thing to do? And, and there is a reason for, for asking that. But, you know, we see a lot of riders now, they're wanting to stay in the UK, build a bit of a name for themselves. You took a big risk, it could be said. You know, not many British riders were making the move and it was a brand new championship. Um, what was the reason sort of that you decided to move away from the UK and, and take that gamble? I, myself, at the time, I needed a fresh start from what I was doing. Um, I mean, I, I was good friends with... Um, Alex Murley, who is um, who was riding in the championship. I mean, we went to uh, school together and and stuff like that. So I was always keeping in touch with him and seeing how he was getting on. And you know, from what I could see and from what he was telling me, it, it seemed like a you know a really good championship, a really good place to be, and a really good place to learn. Um, and where I was at the time, I just needed a fresh start. I'd started. Um, I just moved up from the Aprilia 450 Championship with um, Thundersport with Ian Newton. Um, I just moved up from that up to a, a 600. Um, or tried to anyway, and where I was sort of in my life with the exams and with, I'd literally just broken my leg. So I literally got hopped straight on the bike, literally just straight after um, coming out of the cast. So I wasn't quite as fit as I wanted to be. And it didn't quite go to plan. I ended up, you know, having an arm pump quite a bit. And, um, you know, and a couple of rounds in, into that se- season, it none of nothing really was going right. And I just needed... I felt like I just needed a fresh start. So we thought, let's try something completely different. Um, and uh, you contacted a few a few teams. Um, I think it helped the fact that my dad could speak Italian and he was sort of my, my manager and, and was um, right into a few Italian teams. And we got, uh, we had a couple of couple of tests um, with a couple of them, with one with BRT, one with uh, Moranga. We ended up doing sort of the first half a season with BRT, which was, um, you know, which was, an experience um right I mean right at the beginning the first one I did was Lausitz ring and because that was sort of it was it was a good introduction to it because it was almost like it was um the most British track probably on the world superbike calendar at the time or the closest thing to it um if without being in the UK um so it was a good introduction to it it felt really good and then moving on then to the more European tracks, it was a massive shock to the, to the system sort of thing. It was completely different and it, it's a tough class, like extremely tough class. I mean, it's meant to be, isn't it? It's a world championship, but at the same time, it's, you, you don't realize how different it is and how, how, how tough it is. And, but it, yeah, to, the thing that really appe- appealed to me was just, was the level really. Yeah. And it's funny what you say. I mean, we've spoken to a few, few riders from, from different championships and just talking about move, taking that move from a domestic championship, obviously BSB 
arguably the most competitive domestic championship in the world into World Supersport 300. And I think from the outside, we've said it a few times in the last few months on the podcast, people look at it and go, oh, it's just a little 300, it's a little 400, it's, it can't be that difficult. And then yeah. you see riders like Tom Booth Amos, who's had a great season this year, he's won some races. He didn't come in and win by 20 seconds. And, and Philip Salach, I think, did a wild card in Aragon this year and finished 14th. And this is a kid that's riding at the sharp end in the Moto3 World Championship. And I think it's a big eye-opener for people to go, oh, shit, this is actually quite a quite a tough class, isn't it? And, and certainly since you were in it a few years ago, yeah. regulations have changed, lap times have changed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many... Um, technical and electronic aspects, even to the little 300s now. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's a bit of a minefield if you're coming into it as a, as a young teenager. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the year we were in it as well was the year that, I think it was it was the second year of the class. Um, and it was the year where a lot of the bikes made massive steps forward as well. So we just saw lap records go by like four seconds or something stupid like that, because obviously, because it was a brand new class, everything was improving all the time. Um, and and it still is. So it's, it is it is a really tough class to just go into it. I mean, what we did, I did a wild card again. To, uh, I think it was twenty, yeah, twenty nineteen. Um, I did a little wild card again, and everything had moved forward again. And it's you to to be competitive in the class, you've got you've got to be on your toes all, all, all the whole time. And you know, the teams that are at the front of it are the teams that have been there for either the whole you know the whole time that the the championship's been around, or almost of it, because the championship's just constantly evolving. Yeah, and no, absolutely. And obviously, you then moved away from from the World Championship. You came back to the UK, and you raced mm-hmm. in the um, I call it the Junior Super Sport Three Hundred Championship because I think that's what they call it in in the states. Yeah, is that the right title for it in BSP? Yeah, I think they just call it yeah Junior Super Sport Championship. I believe I think they call nah, it Junior Super Sport. So they don't they don't put the three hundred on the end of it. So Junior Super. No. But you were riding obviously a KTM, so a different manufacturer. Yeah. But you had some some great people around you, including. Jeremy McWilliams, uh, who yeah. most motorcycle fans that are listening will will know who Jeremy is. What a fantastic team for you to be with. And it was a great season for you, wasn't it? Front-running season, podiums, victories, fighting for the title. Um, I mean, that kind of justifies the, the risk and the gamble that you took. Let's go to the World Championship. Let's learn. Let's improve. Let's try and ride like a World Championship rider. And let's come back and fight for the British Championship. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, you know, a, a lot of what I learned was came in really handy when we came back to um, came back to the UK. Um, I mean, it was a different experience because I sort of had to relearn how to ride British tracks again because I sort of spent a year and a half learning how to ride European circuits and then had to sort of unlearn it all again. But a lot of what could have been learned, or a lot of what I did learn, came in really handy for the for that championship as well. And it was a really good season, like you're saying, coming in with that team. It was, you know. I would really say that we were probably on the best turned out bike on the, on the grid. Um, and yeah, having, you know, some, some, some backing like that with KTM was, was, was really good. Um, and yeah, the, the team was, the team were awesome all, all year really. And then I was lucky enough to, um, to, to bring that team with me into, into stock 600 this year as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that transition into stock 600, we've seen a number of riders from the, 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 the junior class, if we can call it that moving into super stock. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just, a minefield as well isn't it in terms of mm-hmm. the level of speeds and you see some of the the, the races there we, we just had a chat the other day with with joe talbot who i think finished seventh or eighth in the championship and yeah. finishing races maybe eighth ninth in the race but he's only two seconds from the win on a stock 600 yeah. <laughs> shows you what again what a great competitive class stock 600 is and and how bsb have got it right in terms of um a, a nurturing ground or a proving ground for, for young riders yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's been really close all year, um, and especially towards the end of the year. And I think that's been the frustrating thing for riders like myself and riders that are around me, 
that have been uh, sort of come into the championship and, and are learning was that I mean every time I felt every time I felt like I'd made a big improvement and made a big step forward so did everyone else so it didn't feel like it felt like we were constantly improving but we were staying in the same place which I mean it's it's, it's it, which is a good thing for your rookie year because I mean it makes you learn even quicker and I do feel like even though it was only you know it was sort of half a year really because com- compared to the to a normal year of I think 11 races 11 rounds rather normally in a year we had six still feel like even just in that condensed time period I learned a hell of a lot just from just from the from the level of the field and and, and jumping up jumping up onto that 600 into a field like that um felt you know felt felt really good as well yeah I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you've you've mentioned obviously the, the move from the the junior super sport onto a stock machine I know a lot of people listening will be quite interested to 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 hear from your point of view, what, what was the biggest thing that you noticed? Obviously, the weight, I imagine, is, is one of the first <laughs> things that you're going to notice. But bikes are obviously a lot faster as well. Yeah, speed. Obviously, speed's the first thing you notice, but you get you get used to that quite quickly. I mean, it, it's. I mean, when you first the first sort of couple of days on it, you you know you do feel you know you really feel the difference in the speed. Um, but then it is something you get used to, something you sort of get acclimatized to. Obviously, the weight. Um, mainly it's mainly the physical aspect to be honest it's mainly how much quicker you get tired on the thing it's sort of on the on the 300 you could spend i could spend all day on it and you know not break not break a sweat we'll be at the end of the day and i'll be all right whereas on the 600 you you, you know you really you, you're forcing the thing into corners and, and 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 forcing it to work so it's 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 a lot more tiring um i'd say and i have had to keep on top of my fitness a lot more this year compared to um, previous years on the 300 obviously you, you still you still keep on top of it but it's been um it's been at a higher level f- for sure because it's had to be on the 600 um and that that's the main thing i've noticed because with the 300 you sort of the style's more to sort of guide it into a corner and you let the bike do a lot of the work whereas this is you sort of you're a lot more aggressive with the bike and you're forcing it to do things and that was the main thing I've had, I've had to learn and that was the main thing that I'd, I'd say the difference was because I think at, at first it, I felt like I was really fast. I felt, oh, I'm going through all these corners really quickly. I'm, I'm already at a really good pace. I think we're going to be really good. And then you, you come back, you look at the lap times or you look at other people's lap times and I was a good, I'd probably say four seconds off and I felt like I was on the limit. And that's because I was riding it like a 300. I was just riding it guiding it in loads of corner speed and trying to you know and trying to ride it how I was riding the KTM whereas when I started thinking a bit more methodically and then starting starting to slow it down a bit more and focusing on the exits and stuff like that and then then the time was coming yeah and you also mentioned you know riding on on the British circuits and it's something that we've talked about with a couple of other riders you know we we spoke to Tom Taparis last week and he's sort of comparing the fact that you know coming from Australia into yeah. the German championship, the IDM, similar to what you said that, you know, circuits yeah. like Lausitz are very similar maybe to tracks that he's used to in, in Australia. They have yeah. only maybe two or three FIM homologated tracks, quite similar to what we've got in, in, in the UK. You know, we're not going to see MotoGP yeah. at Knock Hill, for example. Yeah. Um, but obviously adapting not just to the circuits, but to the way of riding. I mean, the way of, of racing in Europe seems to be different. And I'm not saying that that yeah. is, is a negative against anyone in BSB or yeah. anybody in IDM, yeah. but... That the type of racing when you watch it on the TV, it's different, isn't it? From us watching yeah. on the TV, it looks different, you know. Where you know you see a MotoGP race and a rider will quite happily sit there for twenty-five laps behind somebody and then make a move. In BSB, it's you see a gap and you go for it. In IDM, it's yeah. like that. In the French Championship, mm-hmm. it's like that. How difficult is that to adapt, especially after you've had a couple of years in the World Championship where it's maybe a little bit more thought out, and you come back to to BSB and it's six abreast into Paddock Hill Bend and you're like, bloody hell, what's going on here? Yeah. 
It's funny you say that because I think that was one of the things that I struggled a lot with actually um, last year on the KTM was 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 exactly that. It was literally um, in a lot of places I was trying to be clever and methodical and think out the race and think out strategy. And by the time I'd, I'd thought something out, I'd been passed by five people because it's it's nonstop and they're all just nibbling at, at you constantly. And there was no there was no real racecraft to it, to be honest, in junior supersport. It was just completely, it was just all who could, who could get to the finish line first by literally just a dogfight the whole, the whole race long. I didn't think, um, and, and until, until the last lap, it was literally just, just scrapping nonstop. And I, I felt like the best races I had were races where it was just me and one other person, like earlier in the season, the, very early in the season, my win with against uh, Edmund, it was just me and him. And I could just, watch him all race long and then at the end I thought about where was the best place to pass and I got that done and then I won the race and that was the easiest way for me to be able to do it was to to think about it that's that's the way I prefer to do it and that's also that's the way I'd sort of learned to do it at World Championship because you have to because they as much as I mean if you've watched a World Super Sport 300 race you know it's a dogfight but at the same time it's almost thought about at the same time it's it's a strategic fight whereas junior super sport was just a fight there, there didn't seem to be any strategy to it at all and it frustrated me at times, but it was just the way it was, and it was just the way I, I had to I had to deal with it. So, it was definitely a challenge, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and obviously that's something that you then carry through into into junior from junior supersport into the superstock six, yeah. where it's a bit of a dogfight from start to finish, but just yeah. faster and heavier bikes. Yeah. One of the things that I always like, um, especially when I when I talk to you, I've known you for a few years, obviously from you being in the yeah. world championship. You are quite media savvy, and by that, again, for people yeah. listening, you know you've 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 obviously been to uni. You've looked at the media side of things, and you're yeah. also now sort of part, sort of carving a path, if we can call it that, on the media side of things. You've got into yeah. commentary. You uh, you know you're running a podcast as well yourself. I've I've heard on on the motorsport radio show. You're, you're interviewing yeah. various riders. What's the reasoning behind that? Because obviously, you've still got a great career ahead of you on track, but it's almost as if you kind of you know that you need something to fall back on if it doesn't work out. That's how it may be yeah. across, you know, and, and obviously we, we hope that it does work out for you on track and you yeah. have a great career, but you are aware of, of, of what you need to do off track to, to keep that momentum going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's always been something I've been interested in anyway. Um, and I don't know, I've always um, made sure I was going to have something to fall back on because with racing, it's, it, it's, you know, it's a beautiful sport, but it's not incredibly reliable in that, you know, you, you can always be in the wrong place at the wrong time with sponsors, injuries, whatever. So it's never something I wanted to completely rely on. It's something I love and something I love to do. Um, and, you know, something I've got a lot of passion for and and, and, and I want to progress in and I've got a lot of goals in at the moment. Um, but it's, I've always needed something to, to fall back on. And my family have also, also always pushed me on the education side of things as well. So I've always been thinking about what I wanted to do going to uni and stuff like that. And, I mean, the journalism side of things and the media side of things was always probably going to be the way I was going to go because it, it also keeps me with the racing side of things as well. So it's a way I can still carry on with education and still do, um, you know, still do, uh, still keep in touch with racing at the same time. So it's, it's it's a way of staying in the paddock for me as well. And, and you know, I really I really enjoy what I've been doing with it as well. I've been had a bit of go at commentating with them. Um, uh, fab racing which is you know mini bike championships is where i started out racing as well actually um and it's it's been good to see uh to see all the kids and see see how motivated they are in racing as well so that's that, that's been really good um and and yeah all the journalism stuff keeps me on the side of it and it's actually helped me in racing it's given me um i've interviewed a few people that have ended up being good contacts and i've ended up staying in contact with and 
um, and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's been really useful. I mean, I'd say both, both sides help each other. Um, and if I can keep them, keep them both going. Um, I mean, at the moment, um, the media stuff is paying for the racing, so it helps out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was going to bring up the, the fab racing thing because we're seeing a lot of these mini bike championships, Ovale championships, even in Moto America mm-hmm. this year, they've introduced a new Ovale mini cup for three rounds and that's gathering momentum. And yeah. it's really good to see after a period of time when there hasn't been really been that infrastructure in 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 the UK. You see in Spain and Italy, bike, kids on bikes, as you said, from, from a really young age. It's something that's been missing here. And we look at MotoGP yeah. next year with the possibility of no British rider on the grid. And that's because there's been a blockage, right? There's not been the the yeah. riders to come through because the, you know the, there's the transition and the time it takes. So obviously, the fact that we've now got these championships that is allowing the the future talent to come through that that's fantastic. Obviously, from your point of view, you've raced those mini bikes, you've progressed into the 600 class. But going back as a commentator, how did you find that? Because you know, obviously, I'm a commentator, I'm a presenter, mm-hmm. and you know, it's yeah. I, get, I get paid to talk. But when when it's not your 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 job, you know. Just you, you're racing. How how easy or difficult was it to transition into that? Did you find it quite an easy thing to do? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd done bits and bobs before it, like um, mainly podcasts and stuff like that, and radio shows and um, and those kinds of things, um, and sort of like news presenting for uni. So I, th- I thought I had sort of an idea of how to go about it, um, but I think when it when it started, it was um, it was a struggle at the beginning. I have to say, um, it was. If I go back and listen to the, to the first race I commentated on, I, I can't really listen to it if I'm honest. Um, but then, then I think I was surrounded by good people that helped me learn quickly. Um, the um, uh, the guy I was commentating with, Gareth Holt, he was um, he's actually he was actually really helpful, and it was he was helpful because he'd he'd had like a couple of years experience commentating on like sim racing before, so I could sort of see what he was doing and try and bounce off him and, and copy him a little bit as as it was going on and. Then as the season went on, we it, we, we it helped that we had a good relationship as well that we could just sort of bounce off each other and um, and sort of we worked well together, which which helped a lot. And um, yeah, I just, it was just it was easy to learn as I went on. But I think that that initial stage of getting into it was um, was a bit was a bit tough. Uh, you can definitely tell that in the first commentary, I was a lot more nervous than it was at the end. Yeah, since you said that you can't listen to your first race, I can't listen to any of my races. I still, I still cringe at really? some things <laughs> I come out with. I listened back uh, last week. Actually, I was talking to, to a couple of friends from from Moto America, and uh, we we found some old videos. I think it was from from Pittsburgh, and I don't know where some of the things I came out with. You know, <laughs> really? riders, and I'm just like, God, why did you say that? Like, I mean, <laughs> it sounds kind of cool, but you just think, bloody hell, you sound like an yeah. absolute muppet. But anyway, yeah. but the thing I've always found is it's always quite subjective commentary mm. and presenting it's always subjective isn't it you can look at yeah. i'm a celebrity for example and i've got members of my family that just can't stand listening to ant and deck where i think they're actually yeah. quite funny it, so it's always yeah. a yeah. always a subjective uh kind of thing people will like what you do and and those that do great yeah. and, and there'll be some that, that don't and always think that they they know better is there someone racer uh, or, or anybody else that you think you'd like to interview i mean we're kind of going off topic here but i think it's quite interesting given that you're a bit of a a presenter as well uh, you know who, who would you most like to interview is there somebody past or present that you'd think actually I wouldn't mind a, a 20 minute podcast interview with them and, and if and who, mm. would, who would it be and what would you ask them that's, that's, um, that's an interesting question because I've always I've always liked to try and get out people who are going to bring something that you haven't heard before if you know what I mean um, I'd say probably a quick fire I'd probably say Cal Cal Crutchlow because I feel like he's always He's an interesting character, do you know. What I mean, he's he's always quite honest. He's always got something 
to say. Um, I was going to say, you'd need a bleep button, wouldn't you? You'd need a, you'd need a, yeah, a bleep you button. Every, every time he goes to speak, just hit the beep because you never know what he's going <laughs> to say. But it would be entertaining, wouldn't it? I agree with you there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's, he's entertaining and he's... I mean, I feel like a lot of riders you interview can end up being very well media trained, if you know what I mean, and sort of say... They all sort of say the same thing about, you know, the very sort of almost like journalism kind of stuff. They just sort of churn out the same stuff that they're, they're meant to say because that's what a rider is meant to say so i, I think I'd, if i had to pick someone who i knew would would sort of break that rule a little bit it'd probably yeah i'd say probably cal yeah so i mean i'd be quite interested to interview lorenzo um just given some yeah. of the, not necessarily what he said in the media but what he's tweeted i mean i don't know if you saw the tweet yeah. last week where uh, obviously it was announced that cal crutchlow is going to take over as the, the yamaha tester uh, and yeah. lorenzo tweeted it's like going from gold to bronze and i'm thinking <laughs> what's he saying and i think the tweet yeah. is still there and it's kind of yeah. it's a, it's bizarre to see how riders react and what they put on on social media yeah um, you know i've got a lot of time for lorenzo i think he's a talented rider and i think yeah, yeah, no, sometimes he's been a bit misunderstood but he always strikes me as being one of those characters like cal where he just says what he thinks and yeah and now that he's retired i guess he can say pretty much what he wants anyway yeah exactly yeah. um but yeah it'd be quite interesting get, get them both on quick fire each yeah time. When yeah, Coogan's yeah. out of the way, get them both on a, on a talk show. That'd be <laughs> great, so. Yeah, it should make that happen. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, last couple of questions. Obviously, MotoGP, Juan Mir, uh, the new world mm-hmm. champion. Uh, great <laughs> season for him. Moto2, Moto3, at the time that we're recording this, haven't been decided in, in, in Portimao. Still a chance for, for Sam Lowe's uh, and still a chance for John McPhee to, to end the season on, on a high. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and it's it's been good to see to see Brits at the front as well um, this year. I mean, you know that John McPhee's been been there a while, and he's been you know challenging for wins and stuff for. Um, and he's, he's had a few podiums in the past few seasons, and he's you know even last year we saw that he was he was there, he was getting close, but not not wasn't quite there yet. Um, and same with same with Sam. I think it's been really, really good to see Sam completely turn it around. I've got to be honest, when I saw the signing for Australia Galicia, I wasn't completely sure because I mean he's, he seems to have struggled with the past couple of seasons I think it's safe to say um, but this year he's just come out and look, come look like a completely different rider um, like, honestly slow he's, he's um, I know he has, he's had a couple of crashes now at, at Valencia um, but I'd definitely say he's he's crashed less this year as in general um, and we've seen I'd say a different Sam Lowe's uh, so he's, he's been a lot more a lot calmer and a lot more um, I'd say strategic a lot, a, lot, a lot cleverer to be honest and he's it, you could possibly say he might have thrown it away now, but there's still there's one round left. Port him out. It's it's going to be he's going to be one of the only riders that's ridden that track as well. Of course, it would have been a long time ago, probably back in his Supersport days, but it still could come it could come into as an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, one British rider that we should mention, Jake Dixon, is not going to be racing in in right. now. But what a turnaround for Jake Dixon! Obviously, coming from a, a superbike uh, background and, and moving into Moto Two, not the best season last year, but it was always going to be tough at that level. Learning, right? Yeah. This year, he's really given a glimpse of what he could do next year. And it's a shame that he got injured in in, in Valencia. But you know, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I think he's one to watch next year. You know, I was you know heartbroken seeing him at the side of the track with his head in his hands in Le Mans after after such a great race. Um, but he can learn from that, can't he? I mean, you've been in those situations where you've been leading races or fighting for the podium and it's gone wrong, but you yeah. can learn from that and you come back. And, you know, he's a mentally strong rider, isn't he? He's got a good bunch of people around him. And, you know, the Sepang racing team, I mean, they will make sure that the right people are around him. And I think Jake next year will be also one to watch. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you've, we've seen how much he's come on and that's the most exciting prospect, I think, because he's 
that rider that you see that's constantly improving, constantly evolving. I mean, it was it was heartbreaking what happened at Le Mans when you know he was leading, like you say, and, and, and crashed out because obviously we would have wanted to see that whether it would have been first or second because Sam was pushing him really hard. Um, and yeah, next year it's going to be really exciting to see. He's he's got that deal confirmed again for next year, so he's going to be. Uh, he's going to be he's going to be going out to win it probably. I mean, it, it's going to be it's going to be a tall order. There's there's I mean, it's it's not easy to win a world championship, but I would I wouldn't put it past him. The the, the rate he's been improving. I mean, he had that that really tough year on that KTM, um, and it, it was he was he was very lucky to be given that second chance on the um, on the bike that he's been on this year, and he's he's really proved that that he's worth it's worth being there. And it is it is really difficult learning learning these circuits and learning how to ride like these, and especially in a class like Moto Two, when you can see it's it's almost like the top the top twenty is split by two seconds or a second and a half a lot of the time, and it's it's incredibly incredibly close racing, and for him to be able to to, to push through um, and 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 learn at a rate he has is is incredibly impressive, and it's it's something that you know people at the side on the sidelines expect him to be able to do, but it is an extremely difficult thing that he has done, and it is it is really impressive and. And for, and next year, I, I expect to see him, you know, push push in podiums at the very least. Yeah, absolutely, fully fully agree. Final couple of questions then: uh, Who's going to take the the final MotoGP seat uh, alongside Alex Espargaro? I mean, it seems to be a seat that everyone's linked to, but nobody seems to want it, which uh, yeah. is a bit yeah, you know, it's a bit of a shame for Aprilia because they're obviously spending a lot of money. But you know, there's there's new names being linked to that seat now. Where everybody from Tito Rabat yeah. right the way through some of the Moto Two names, Fabio Di Antonio has been linked to the yeah. team. Marco Bezzecchi's linked to the team, even though he's been announced with with uh, the Sky VR46 team again. Uh, Chaz Davies and Eugene Laverty's names have now been thrown in, into uh, yeah. into the mix. What, what's your thoughts about about that? Because it's it does seem like Aprilia's maybe lost their way a little bit uh, for various reasons, and it, it just would be nice to see them have a you know have a, have a solid season with two two riders. Yeah. Obviously, I know they got caught up with the the Anoni uh, thing, who's obviously been uh, banned for for four years, which hasn't really helped them. Um, yeah. So uh, th- thoughts about that? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a crazy one because, like you say, so many names have been been thrown into to the mix. If you asked me a week ago, or you know, a week and a half ago, I probably would have told you that Cal was going to take that ride. Um, but yeah, at this point, um, it's not it's not going to be Lorenzo. I know that was that was thrown into the mix a few times. I, I don't think it's going to be Lorenzo. I wouldn't like to see it being someone like you say, Bezzecchi or someone coming up from Moto Two. As much as you know. No disrespect to Aprilia, I, I think riders coming up and through should probably be put on a better package. I mean, we saw when Sam Lowe's came up and through and was put on Aprilia and, and struggled quite a bit and then ended up going back to Moto2. It's not really a bike you want to start off your MotoGP career on, if you know what I mean, because there's not really going to be much promise there. I just, um, like, yeah, I mean, just, just on that, though, I mean, just playing devil's advocate, um, yeah. and this is where we're probably going to have another 10-minute conversation about, about this, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I find it quite interesting because on paper... I would agree with you. And I'm not, again, yeah. nothing against Alacious Bagaro. He's a, he's a quick no. rider. But, you know, on paper and the results that they've had, it doesn't look like it's a competitive bike. What do you think the bike would achieve with somebody like Mark Marquez on it, you know? Uh, or if they put Davizioso on it, you know? And, and again, I'm not saying that in a disrespectful way to Alacious Bagaro, but he hasn't been at the sharp end week in, week out. You know, do you think that if they had somebody of that caliber, a proven front runner, a proven champion in, in Marquez's case, yeah. do you think that the bike would be top six fighting for the podium mm-hmm. because they said that about um, KTM, right? A couple of years ago. And then all of a sudden it turned around and it seems that for whatever reason, really just haven't been able to do that. Mm. It, it would be interesting for sure. I think, I mean, whatever bike you put Mark on, if you take Mark as, as the example, he would, 
he'd be able to get the most out of it, or whatever that is, and he'd be, he'd push it hard. You'd see a lot of crashes, I think, because I mean you do anyway from Mark. But on a bike that is not capable of winning, I think he would throw it down the road quite a bit. Um, I'd say he'd probably be able to get consistent sort of top ten on it. Um, I don't think you're going to get a hell of a lot better than what Alicia's doing, to be honest. But probably more consistent than what Alicia's doing because I mean Alicia seems to be one of those riders where it's sort of more. Um, you know, th- he throws a lot, a lot at it for one lap or, you know, throws absolutely everything at it, but he'll come in and won't actually be able to tell you how he's done it. He's just sort of, um, sort of, you know, bit the screen and, 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 and hope for the best. He seems like one of those kinds of riders, whereas as much as, you know, Mark is incredible, does incredible things, he does it and he knows what he's doing. He's, he's, he's very methodical at the same time. So I think he'd be able to get that done and get it done consistently. And I think he would be able to progress the bike in in a direction that would improve it but probably like we've seen with the honda would he'd bring it in a direction that improves it for himself but maybe not for other people because i mean not many people ride like mark marquez and that's why not many people can do what what he's doing on the honda that's a fair point yeah that's a that's a really good point i mean obviously there's one name that we haven't thrown into the mix and that's yourself i mean obviously you speak italian i mean there's a <laughs> we need a brit on the grid so i mean an anglo anglo let's get your name out there let's you know if you yeah. don't manage get pick up the phone call couple of couple of italian conversations tristan Fanocchiaro on the grid next year jobs jobs are good yeah absolutely i'll get my get my dad on the phone to Cresini and and I'll, and I'll be there yeah absolutely absolutely i mean <laughs> j- joking aside is that the long term yeah. ambition is is that the route that you'd like to go or is it more a more a world superbike route or is it british superbikes what what's the long term goal as far as riding goes for you i, I mean every, everyone's goal is MotoGP, really isn't it but it being i mean being realistic i'm 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 22 now and um all all i all i really want is i'm just taking it sort of a season at a time at the moment and 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 seeing where that ends up i mean um, it's going to be you know next season's either going to be um another year in stock six or or something similar and i just want to make sure i'm at the front of that getting podiums in that and you know pushing pushing closer and closer to the to podiums in that and, and seeing where that takes me um i do have a bit of a short-term goal to get to to superstock 1000 if, if i'm if i'm being honest um it's somewhere where i think you know can can bring a lot of opportunities um if we can get if we can get up into the superbike class, that that would eventually be the be the goal as well, and then see where that takes me. That you know you never know you might end up world superbike from there onwards as well. But um, a lot of things to keep into account is um, is money and sponsors and 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 stuff like that. I mean, if you if you'd asked me sort of five years ago, I would have said yeah, obviously the goals GP world superbike stuff like that. But I think the, the more I've sort of stayed in the class, even my time at world championship, my time in in BSB of very much realized how much money plays a part in things and and um like I said I've got I've got a lot of things going on in life as well as well with media and stuff like that I mean don't get me wrong I really want it with the racing and it's something I really you know I want to keep keeping my life and it's something that I want to um progress in and and um but at the same time there's there's a lot of factors to it and there's it's, it's a there's a lot that it um sort of burdens on life on the financial aspect and stuff like that and you've seen well, I've seen you've seen a lot of riders this year pull out of racing actually because of the financial side of it. So um, for as long as that I can keep that, um, keep uh, for as long as I can fund it and keep funding it, I will keep you know pushing myself forward and pushing myself through the classes because that's what I want to do at heart. But at the same time, sometimes you need to think about whether it, that's burdening too much on your life or not. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think, you know, a lot of people mm. listening will really appreciate uh, the honesty. Well, we've been chatting for, for almost 30 minutes, so uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get into trouble by the uh, producer because, uh, again, uh, <laughs> okay. as I keep saying, I get paid by the word. So for me, we can just keep going. It's great. The more <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it's been great talking to you as well. And, and I've really enjoyed, you know, seeing how you've, you've progressed in your career. And obviously it's been a couple of years since Thank we you. caught up face-to-face because you came back to, to BSB. But I think it's, I think what you're doing is great. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess the final thing we should ask you before we let you go is, is how can people follow you? I mean, that's the whole point of, of being on the Room podcast. Yeah. <laughs> give, you a, give you a window of opportunity to get a, a few more people following you. So how, how can people interact with you if they want to do that? Yeah, for sure. Um, Instagram's probably the um, you know the best place to uh, to to follow or to um, or to get in contact because uh, I'm not probably I'll probably say I'm on that the most. Um, and that's uh, my Instagram name is very long. Uh, Tristan Federico Finocchiaro is the whole name. But if you just type in uh, Tristan with a Y, uh, Finocchiaro, it's a very easy profile to find because it's a very unique name. Uh, equally, equally on Facebook, uh, I have a Facebook page on there that I try and keep people up to up to date as much as possible uh tristan finocchiaro hashtag uh, 58 um equally on twitter as well uh tristan finocchiaro is nice and easy to find nice nice and easy name <laughs> yeah absolutely well hopefully a lot of people will start following you and uh, certainly here at room we'll be following uh, how you get on and, and hopefully see you in the world superbike paddock again even just as a guest i mean you'd always be welcome if we get fans back uh now that you're doing commentary i give my voice a rest you can come and do a commentary <laughs> of a super bowl session or something with me uh, i would, I would happily do so yeah, yeah that'd, that'd be, be taking up on that that'd be great so well obviously best to uh, to the family uh, enjoy yeah. uh, Christmas let's hope we have some kind of normal Christmas uh, as best we can yeah, so. and uh, yeah look forward to uh, to seeing you back on track uh, and hopefully off it as well uh, in 2021 yeah absolutely so thank you take care mate yeah cheers Tristan thanks mate Our next guest on the Vroom podcast this week is American rider James Rispoli, who a lot of our listeners will be familiar with from the road racing world. He finished fourth in the BSB uh, 600 Championship, a front runner there, but he's turned his attention in 2020 back to the flat track with great success. James, thanks for for joining us. Uh, How are you, mate? I know you're dialing in from the Netherlands, uh, which is where you're uh, holed up at the moment. Yeah, I'm doing well. You know, I'm in the Netherlands. It's a bit cold uh, rather than being in sunny old Florida, but I'm here with my girlfriend kind of having a a detox or, you know, a chill out after a grueling season for for myself. Um, As you guys know, like all the series have gotten condensed and, you know, back-to-back races and this and that and just racing period, you know, I think uh, with the time right now, it's kind of good to just take a, a couple weeks off and chill out and you know drink some wine eat some pasta <laughs> yeah absolutely how have you found the season obviously we're going to talk a lot about the the uh, american flat track the production twins series that you uh, were in this year that you won this year uh with with an incredible season we'll talk about that in detail in a second but how did you find the season because i know certainly from a road racing perspective no fans socially distanced everywhere wearing masks everywhere i do understand that you guys did have some fans uh, there was an element of fans uh, being allowed yeah, so I think the fans, uh, you know, we had like I think twenty five percent occupancy because every every state was different. So I guess it'd be like every country for you guys. Um, so every state had their own deal. We had like from twenty five percent occupancy to I think some races had fifty percent. You know, like we had a, a Texas race that was huge. You know, and we had a Pennsylvania race that was big. You know, I think they all made money, which was really really good. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's, it was weird, you know, masks inside the pits, outside, 
uh, the, the, the pits were locked in, fans couldn't come in. We couldn't go out once you got in, you know, as in, as you came in in the morning, you were stuck in the paddock all day. If you left, you weren't allowed back in. They were trying to control it as best as we could. I think American flat track did a phenomenal job for kind of being a more low budget series rather than like, you know, the big series like world Superbike or, you know, even, uh, you know, Dorna and, you know, NASCAR or whatnot, but they did really good. They had good protocols. Um, and yeah, I mean, to be honest, I hate to say it, but coronavirus actually helped me more than anything. Um, you know, it gave me more time to get ready for this season, more testing, get my fitness up because in 2019, I had a horrible, you know, I was broke. I had nothing. I was bootstrapped out of my own deal. I, I landed the Harley deal halfway through the season and did well, but like I wasn't in shape, you know, I didn't have anything, you know, and I was kind of like, just re kind of coming back into racing form after I left BSB in 2018. So, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's been a strange, strange old year. And I've been involved in motorsport for 15, 20 years since I was a kid, but I actually got to see my first flat track race last year uh, when we went to, uh, to road America uh, for Moto America, there was a local flat track race and I wasn't really sure what to expect. I'd seen like the super prestigio, you know, with Marquez and uh, and all these guys that they were used to do in Barcelona. I thought, I'll, I'll go along. And I got invited along. I was blown away, even for like a localized flat track race. This place was packed. The arena was packed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many people racing and the bikes as well. You know, I wasn't really sure anything about the bikes from a technical side. But you guys are racing some pretty, pretty pretty big beasts, aren't they? You know, the, the Harleys and, and uh, all these other things. I mean, uh, incredible bikes that you guys race. I think the race that you might have gone to is the Dayland Classic. They always put it near Road America. It's in Wisconsin, which is always a big event. That's a pretty big money event. Um, that definitely produces some a lot of people to come. Uh, I think as well though is you know it's like the the it's like a, a gladiator ring. You know what I mean? It's probably the best thing closest to that. Uh, you know everything's pretty small except for you go to the Springfield Mile and a couple of our miles. Everything you can see from the stands. You know, like Barcelona, you know, obviously we do things different than Marquez's deal because we run 19s and we have a little bit different setup. But and, you know, we run the twins um, on the bigger class, which is Harleys, Indians, Yamahas, uh, Suzuki and whatnot, Kawasaki's. But, yeah, it's a it's a totally different vibe. If you ever get a chance to come to Springfield Mile, Indy Mile, you know, to really see the 750s hustling down the straightaway listening to that sound it's like going to a moto gp event for on dirt like, like it's it's really cool the sounds the vibrations you know that's the one thing about moto gp is so cool you hear them start up they come by it's loud it's you know what i mean it's close racing at springfield mile last year in race two we had there was nine riders in the lead group it was like a moto three race in you know for twins which was insane you know like we come into the corner fan out we go back in deadline, you know, passing and whatnot. So it was really cool. Um, but I think for people that don't know, like we just try to get them to come to the race because I think a lot more people get hooked once you see it. I think it's hard to tell how cool it is from the TV. It's not like MotoGP or World Superbike where you can get those sweet camera angles and really see how close it is. And you're like getting enthralled by it. Whereas, you know, when you come to a dirt track event, it's so like, the energy is so good. It's a family deal. It's you can see the entire track. You're not standing in T1. You're standing at the top, seeing everything. 
And I think that's kind of like one of the big thing about dirt track that it is so different. Yeah. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head. I mean, I wasn't really sure what to expect. You know, I got invited along just by a couple of guys that were racing on the road racing side in, in junior cup and super sport. And I went along and for me, it was nonstop. It was a good three, four hours. There was nonstop racing, great action. And as you said, super, super cool racing. And you know, the atmosphere in the fans, everybody in the, the hot dogs and cheering and the noise. And I was like, man, this is actually really cool. You know, it reminded me of like, you know, when I went to speedway as a, as a kid, slightly you know, similar, but, but a bit different, but and I'd kind of forgotten that. And I, you know, I definitely agree with you. Anybody that's never been to American flat track, if you get the opportunity to go, you've got to go and, and do it. And it's a sport that you've been involved with pretty much your whole life, isn't it? I know you, you switched to road racing and you had a great career in road racing, but you kind of went back to your roots, if we can call it that, this year. Let's just talk about this year, because what a stunning um, season it was for you. You won the American Flat Track Production Twins Championship. You won seven races out of the 15 or 16 starts, so a 50% win record, which is incredible. The same number of pole positions. I think your worst finish was sixth, if I've done my research right. You led 134 laps and you ended the season with 313 points. I mean, that is some, that's some return to the sport, mate. I mean, congratulations. But uh, I mean, did you expect to be that dominant? I mean, that is a hell of an achievement. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I didn't, you know, like come, like I said, just like we'll backpedal for just one year, quick synopsis. When I came back, I was a year or two early back to dirt track. Like when I left their track, I only did like a couple wild cards over the 10 year span that I left. And I was doing like the Nikki Hayden route where we went road racing. We were going to make it this, that, and the other. Well, things kind of crumbled all around the world. And, you know, it's, it's hard right now in road racing, you know, unless you've got money behind you, it's kind of turning into a little bit of a car deal, unless you've got serious money behind you um, or you're still on your way up. You know, unfortunately I was a bit of a late bloomer. So my age didn't really help me on the fact of climbing the tree to where maybe my ambitions and where I thought I could make, you know, but I had a very great career in British Superbikes. I would have loved to stayed for another year or two because I really wanted to go against, you know, Jack Kennedy and Supersport head to head on competitive motorcycles where we were on identical stuff. Cause I really believe he's one of the best super sport riders you know, there ever is. I, I really believe it. And I was close, you know what I mean? Like I raced him every weekend. He smoked me that year, but at the, but I raced him like, yeah, he beat me in a lot of races, but I raced him. It was awesome. And he was probably one of the coolest competitors I've ever raced. Now, when I kind of moved away from that, it was kind of an abrupt deal. Most of my big career changes is because I've either lost a ride or a team's folded, you know, like Jordan, when I went over there and then Everquip kind of didn't want to go again in 2019. So it forced me back to America. Now, when I came back, it was kind of a scramble because I didn't have any, I had 5,500 bucks to my name, which was insane. You know, having a pretty good career, I didn't really have anything. I had no vehicle because I sold everything because I lived in Europe five years. I had like a laptop. So I had to like figure out what I was going to do. Luckily, I kind of put some deals together, got on a Kawasaki. I did pretty horrendous when I started. And I thought, man, maybe I forgot how to ride a little bit. Like, this dirt track. I don't remember it being that difficult when I came back and did a wild card the year before where I qualified second. And I was like, I don't remember this. And then I got on the Harley deal. And from then on, it was like go time. My second race, I got on the podium and then I started creating that relationship with the Harley and things again, kind of transpired where I came back and got on a latest deal with a great team and everything. Now, when I first got on that motorcycle and I was back to having a salary where I could train hundred percent, I started building confidence again. I put my trainer that I won my two super sports championships 
back in America in 11 and 12. He was back with me. I got back on a bicycle. I started doing all the same things. I just kind of went rocky in my nutshell. Now, when they canceled, I was ready for Daytona in March, but when they canceled it, it gave me another, what, four months Everybody kind of like took a month off or whatever and was like, you know, you know, let's take a month. And this, I just kept pounding, pounding. You know, I started bicycle racing and doing things. And I just kept trying to keep winning. We just tried to keep building that confidence that I've lost, for, you know, for two years. So that really helped me in the fact where when I came to the first race in July, I was so prepared. I've done thousands of laps on the Harley. I've done over 4,000 miles on my bicycle already. I was like in a whole nother space already. And I felt like I was back, you know, I was skinny, like, you know, you just get that confidence when you get a new suit or whatever. That's how I felt. I felt like I was back. And then, so from, from day one, I felt really confident that I could have a chance at the title. And when we went out, I got like, I think three seconds in a row and it was like Varnes texter and somebody else won the first three races. I got three seconds and I was like, you know, am I ever going to win one of these? Cause I haven't won a race in a while. You know, I've gotten plenty of podiums, but it's not like winning. And then the first one came at Indy and I smoked everybody by 12.3 seconds. And it was crazy. It was more, probably the, the best one I've ever had in my life. It was so big on sprint Indy mile. It was crazy. Um, and that's what like switch. And it was like super sport season all over again. When I won eight races in 2012, it was like, we clicked off one and we clicked off another and it was like, we were leading all the sessions. You, you know how it goes when somebody just finds that flow, it's like, you're, you you like, you find yourself 10th, 11th and qualifying. And then out of nowhere, you're back, you win the race. And it was this, that you had that kind of swag, that confidence. And once I started getting a couple, it was really cool though, because I'd go to some of these races and I'd be like sixth, fifth, like nowhere chance for a win. And we would just get through it and the persistent we would win the race and we ended up winning five in a row and that was the dominant part of it was winning five in a row it was pretty crazy and once i got through that it was i felt like we had a pretty good pretty good uh you know hand on everything and you know back to your thing i didn't think we'd be that dominant but once we were in the season it just felt like super sport again and then i knew we would kind of keep going yeah, and you've kind of said what a lot of the top riders in whatever discipline say, right? That it's about having the right people around you. And I work with a number of younger riders as well at various different levels in, in the UK and in, in Europe as well. And it is just like a jigsaw, isn't it? It's about putting those pieces together. Lewis Hamilton even just talked about it, didn't he? When he talks about I've got the right trainer, he's got that relationship with his trainer, he's got the right the crew chief, his relationship with his the the, the technical guy that's constantly on the radio with him. It's if you surround yourself with those right people, if you're if you're eating right, if you're training right, and it all just gels, it is just as you said, like a snowball effect, isn't it? And, and that's what a lot of the younger kids that I see they 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 forget that they miss that. I think it's all about what you're doing on the track, but it's not, is it? You know, you prove that, you know, if you, if you surround, surround yourself with the right people and, and, and all these pieces of the jigsaw fit together, the results on the track, I'm not saying they'll come easy, right? Because it's not easy to go and win races at, at any level, but it becomes easier. A hundred percent. And I mean, I'll just take myself as like, if any young guy could listen to the story, in 2019, I had a $1,500 van that had no floor in the back, was rusted out that my buddy bought me because I had no money to in one in 
13 months winning five races and winning the production championship and coming back in dirt track and only in my second year and winning a championship. I mean, that just speaks for itself. Like it's the little wins. It's the little sacrifices that you take all around and it's timing. It's just timing. A lot of young people don't realize that the timing has to all be there for everything to kind of sync up. You could have the number one crew chief, the number one, this, the number one, all these guys, but it just doesn't work. You know, you got to have, you don't need to have the best of the best. You just need to have everybody working together collectively, which I think gives you more confidence than somebody who has, say, you know, whatever, the Jeremy Burgess of crew chiefs and the technical data engineer of, of lifetime that can make your bike amazing. But if he doesn't, if you're not vibing, it doesn't matter. Like if you have somebody that's like, oh, dude, I don't really know. Let me go ask and figure it out. And you guys work through it and you're in there and they're like, hey, we don't know, but we think this is it. And you go and win. That gives you more confidence than the guy like number one saying this is the winning package and you lose. It's like a double edged sword. You know what I'm saying? So mentally, I think I think timing's huge. And a lot of kids expect, you know, a lot of kids expect to have success in one two years i mean this is my 24th year racing a a motorcycle you know and it's like you know this wasn't an overnight success like last year i had pretty much bet and hinge all of my integrity and all of my relationships to get back to a winning deal to be able to be at the top again and it's you know like that's what 20 years of relationships that I had to go and say, listen, I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back. You know, whatever that is, you know, like give me the shot. You're not going to forget it. Like look at my peg degree. You know, it's like, you know, it takes a while. And it's one of those things that it's a roller coaster. You have, when I went over Europe, I thought I had, you know, everything in a nutshell, you know, I was, I was skyrocketing, you know, and it didn't quite work out. You look at girl off. It took him how long, to find the right team and it didn't work in the beginning. He wasn't like amazing. And then just found his stride. Everybody knew he had super talent. I raced against him in super sport, but it's the timing, you know, and now he's got the success. He's got speeds. He's got, you know, he did that wild card on the Moto GP. And it's like, now it's like, dude, I was like top X on Moto GP. Now when he goes back to world Superbike, he's like, it's a bravado. It's just, now he's just, moving it's great i love it so yeah and that's a, a great need in it yeah yeah I was gonna say, that's a great um example as well i was going to talk a little bit about moto america and obviously your time in in this in the uh, the states there Gurloff's a prime example isn't he of a, of a rider as you said from a timing point of view i mean i know garrett for, for five or six years he's obviously super sport champion like yourself in the past when he first came to, to Superbike, a lot of people were saying well who the, who the hell is garrett Gurloff? you know and bobier is the man on a superbike and like you said, I I saw the talent. I was like, no, if this kid gels, if it comes together for him, he will be quick and he could be on the podium. And it didn't work out for him in Australia, did it? He was on the floor. He was got a couple of points, I think, in the first race. And everyone's like, oh, see, he's not that great. Now at the end of the year, as you said, he's three podiums. He's fighting for the victory. Um, I've got live timing on at the moment in, in the, the apartment here in London watching the test from Jerez. And he's you know fastest on day one. He's, you know, he's testing Valentino Rossi's bike and at one point was lying fifth in that session in, in free practice, uh, free practice one. And everyone's like, bloody hell, he can actually ride a bike. And, you know, I think one of the guys from Yamaha said, didn't he, you know, he's, he's somebody that we'll look at in a couple of years for MotoGP. And you just think all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden you get those opportunities. And as you said, timing is everything. 
you mentioned obviously you started riding when you were six, I think, competitively. Um, what got you into what actually got you into racing? And let's 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 go right back to the beginning. Yeah, crazy thing is, is my dad's best friend, you know, really got me into racing. But like my dad got was always like a, a motorhead, you know, like, but he was from Brooklyn, New York. So they didn't really have like you couldn't, you know, he was just riding on the street and kind of a little bit of a hooligan kind of deal with his dad and then when i when we lived in new hampshire i had a jr50 and my brother had an xr80 and we used to go into like construction sites and just ride around and i have a brilliant picture with like the knee pads outside the pants you know one of those half helmets goggles like looking all weird dorky and i loved it um and then i went to my first race because my dad's friend took us you know as a weekend warrior kind of deal like hey come to this jolly rogers i remember it like it was yesterday I went up the ramp to like, there was a ramp going up, which is the exit ramp. And then you had to go around the track to go. And I went up the backwards. I went backwards. On the track. I had no idea what was going on. They flipped me around. I got dead last in the race. My dad's friend gave me a trophy. Cause I was the only one who didn't get a trophy. And I loved it. Like I used to, I used to come home after school, throw my book bag. And we used to have this like pretty big driveway. Um, I would say enormous from anything in Europe, like, you know, and it had this little, just like, it was, I don't, it was like, kind of like, uh, it was a kind of a hill. And so I used to just ride up and down the driveway. That's it up and down and just brought, brought, and I, it was like back in the day, it was so weird because you know, I don't see it now with kids, but like for ask permission, like I always just like got on it, started it and went. And then it was just like, I had a, a crazy 50 career where I had the JR. Then I had a um a z50 i looped that thing out you know with the you had gears on it revving it up threw it in gear and just looped it out first time riding that like i was a mess i had a you know polini lm uh like i had a huge 50 career and then i got a 65 and i did really well i, I won my first race at bangor maine um which was a big half mile first time there on a, a cushion half mile it was like pea gravel almost like rossi's um you know dirt so and um yeah, man. Like it just started. Like once I got on the 65, they, they knew I was like kind of good. And then my dad kind of really like, okay, well you're pretty decent. Cause on the 50, I really never did anything. You know, I was like good, but I never like was like dominant or anything, but on the 60, I was quick. And then we used to go to amateur nationals and all that. And then we saw the Nikki Hayden thing. And that's kind of what everybody in my crop was thinking about was how do we, do this dirt track thing to a point to get to a road racing and get the, because at that time there was still huge amounts of money in American road racing, you know, 20 million Honda deals, you know, like huge deals, you know, like, um, and then the, finally, when I got to road racing was when the credit crunch hit and like Matt Maladin was at 7 million. And then out of nowhere, there's no money. It's like crazy, you know, back. So that's kind of how it came up. And then it was, it was, you know, we raced dirt track, my whole amateur. I did a, a couple pro years, but then moved to road racing fairly quickly. And then kind of just dipped my toe into, into dirt track from then on out. And it kind of took a big hiatus of it. Yeah. Obviously so. the, the journey, obviously I, I got to know you when you came over for, for BSB and, and you were, you know, you were also instrumental. I do remember you, you were involved with some, it wasn't a snack bar. It was kind of like an energy bar or something. And I can't, I'm, I'm you've got to forgive me. I can't remember the the name of it, but tell us about that. Cause that was also something that at the time was kind of a little bit revolutionary. People are like, Oh, he's a racer. And now he's launching his own food supplements or whatever it was. I, I remember something vaguely. I can't remember exactly what it was. 
Yeah, so it was called Fats Bar. That's so it, it was a high, yeah, high fat energy bar. It was kind of the first of its kind. It's funny is, is my dad actually sent me a picture yesterday of an, a, another company that launched something similar to it. And this bar was a paleo-friendly vegan, gluten-free, grain-free, the whole nine made for athletes that were, you know, mainly keto or, you know, like on a keto-friendly diet, you know, that was and it all came about because one, I was very interested in business. My dad taught me a lot about marketing and business. He never really taught me about racing. You know, um, he was a marketeer and I always, after my second championship, I had some money and I wanted to like start a business. And I, I remember on the, you know, just one day we kind of just felt this fell into our lap. Cause I was, I lost a lot of weight doing kind of a keto friendly diet. And I was looking, I'm like, like, I don't understand how people are eating anything. Like there's nothing to eat like specifically training. And I was like, what am I going to bring like, like pecans and like, like an avocado on my bicycle? Like you can't do that. And then I realized everybody was making their own, they're making their own bars. I'm like, why don't you just make a bar? Anyways, long story short, we, I kind of, my sister was a, she's kind of a health nutrition and she's into that. And she kind of helped me with the recipe and we got a private label on board the whole nine. And from start to finish in six months, we, you know, launched fats bar. And my first year, we sold 30,000 bars and kind of really, you know, we broke even the first year. It was super bootstrapped, like white box with a sticker on. Like it was, it was like, you know, something kind of cool. And um, it was good. Like we ended up launching our second bar the next year it was a brownie, mint chocolate chip brownie, which was super good and super filling. Um, and then the problem is, is that I was nervous on bringing an investor on to be able to take it to the next level. Like I have in talks with GNC in America in talks to do this, but I needed like, you know, another 25, 30 grand to really do everything they wanted before we got to pricing. And I was all about, well, where's pricing so I can kind of figure out if I can even, you know, manufacture the stuff, you know, like my bar was a premium bar. It was expensive, but long story short, racing kind of started dipping and I had to kind of pull back and take it take racing back by control. Cause it's my primary source of income and I wasn't ready to give up the dream yet. And, um, you know, so we kind of put it on the ice, you know, it's been on ice now for a couple of years. Um, I haven't really brought it back and I don't know if I will. The good thing is, is I know how to start a business. Like if there's a great, an idea, we found a, a super niche market that nobody was even about. We went to the largest expo in America and I was handing out my bars to the biggest brands, Laura bar, cliff and whatnot i was like are you guys like thinking about this and they weren't even thinking about this market right and now people are starting to because it's, it's hard it's hard to make a bar that tastes good but you know essentially with no carbohydrates you know it's a hard thing to do like sugar and all of that it's hard to make so yeah man it was it was a huge experience a great learning curve i did it for very low dollars you know we pretty much broke even and you know i learned more about doing that and how to you know, kind of manage something and to actually see some of my bars and some stores, some local shops was really cool. And yeah, I think it's something after racing, I could probably go back into something. Yeah. And no, I think it'd be cool. I'm just, my brain's going on, obviously, you know, me with promotion and things like that, but I'm thinking we've got a oh, show yeah. here in the UK called Dragon's Den. I think you guys in the States call it Shark Tank. And I've just yeah. got visions. Again, people people listening to this will be thinking, what? But obviously, I have the benefit of this interview with a video, so I can see James's expressions. And I think this would be so cool. He hangs up his, his racing boots and his racing helmet. And, uh, you know, 10 years from now, you're, you're in the Shark Tank studio. I mean, that would be so cool. That would be such a cool project. Oh, it would be, it'd be amazing. And, um, 
we thought about it. We thought about trying to do stuff like that, but the, it's it's hard because like I, I would hate to go on something like that and be like, you know, unfortunately the brand market, unless you're Cliff, Laura, whatnot, it's all about branding, right? You know, right. it's about like so for me, technically, I don't really own anything, you know, like I own a recipe. They change one ingredient, they own the recipe. So right. it's like it's it's a hard market to really do anything about, you know, like like one of those big bar companies could, e- could easily just change it. Or if I went into Shark Tank, they'd be like, the first thing they're going to ask, we don't own anything. What's what's why don't I just put two, you know, a million dollars down and just crush you with your yeah. recipe? Yeah, exactly. And you know what I mean? So like it was kind of a I don't know. I think maybe it was just a learning curve, like timing again. You know, I think it was something that probably wasn't meant for me to spend my entire, you know, five, six years life on doing, you know, like racing always takes precedent in my life. But I agree. I think there's something eventually after I'll I'll start and maybe it'll be a spin off fats bar. Who knows? Yeah, great. That's cool. That's cool. Let, let's bring it back then just to finish off uh, with the race. And you're obviously the, the AFT uh, Productions Twin Champion. Uh, as I said, phenomenal season. You're obviously quick on tarmac as well. We've seen that. Uh, you've proved that over the last uh, eight, 10 years as well. What does 2021 hold for James Rispoli then? Are we going to see you sticking to the dirt? Are you planning on coming back to the roads? What, what's the plan? Well, so the plan's kind of a little bit over the map. You know, Harley Davidson just announced that they've cut their factory team. They're going to promote the latest team into um, with some some backing. They're going to go back to promoting, you know, their uh, grassroots kind of field. So um, we're still working on things. My goal is to be in Super Twins, you know, because I've I've got such a I've never the crazy thing is I've raced dirt track my whole life. I've never stepped into the big class, you know. So I'll be a rookie next year, which is insane. Um, just with road racing and whatnot through my career. So I always have wanted to be in the big class. I've always wanted to test my metal. Obviously the Harley isn't the best motorcycle there, but I think, you know, with some good, uh, you know, backing and whatnot, we can make a difference and be competitive. Hopefully that comes through to fruition. You know, that's kind of the plan, but as you know, things that go crazy and sideways, I have another goal of, of racing Suzuka. Um, I've all wanted to race Suzuka and, uh, one of the guys who has been, you know, instrumental in, into my return on to dominance is, is Kieran Clark. You know, um, he, we do a lot of the stuff from with the movies. He does a lot. I'm with on his camera bike team with KC 74, um, and the camera bike crew. Um, and he was one of the guys that actually funded my Daytona effort in 2019 to come, come back. So I didn't have to retire from racing. You know, it was him really that kind of pushed the envelope along with a couple other people. Well, he's, you know, really been pushing Harper on me to do Suzuka. And we're trying to put together a plan together to do, to try to figure out how I can race Suzuka. That's a huge goal of mine. And then to possibly do eventually, maybe not this year, but we're always trying to do one or two BSB wildcards, whether it be in super sport or whatnot, favorite tracks, Thruxton, and Assen you know, those types of tracks that I've always done well, Silverstone, always podium to kind of just keep my name there and do it for fun, more or less. Um, I'm not expecting really to do anything crazy and get a ride out of it. Cause I have a, a you know, I've made my, a name for myself in dirt track a little bit, but those are still some ambitions. I'd love to get on an actual proper super bike and BSB and get a real shot eventually. So maybe when I, you know, build this hundred million dollar company, I can then buy my own team and go yeah, race the cool. best bike. Now that'd be cool. But yeah, that's, actually, that's, 
No, I was going to say I didn't actually realise that you were you were hooked up with with Kieran Clark. Obviously, um, a lot of people listening maybe uh, are too young to, to to remember Kieran, but he was a, a bloody fast rider, wasn't he? He came through the R six Cup, and uh, he's now a, a top stunt man. He, he does all. He works with Tom Cruise on all the Mission Impossible uh, stuff. We, he's he's really landed uh, on his feet and uh, just does some cool things. So that I didn't actually know that was was something you did. I tell you what would be cool at Suzuka, you and Kieran. Now that would be a team, wouldn't it? Oh, it'd be awesome. You know, Kieran's always, you know, we want to do something, you know, like we all, we talk about, we talk weekly. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. He's, he's been on a lot of movies lately. We did a movie, we were on fast nine together. He brought me in to kind of help him with that. And, um, you know, he's helped me so much, you know, in, in a short amount of time without really knowing me. And, you know, we, we always have these huge dreams, you know, we always kind of push each other to the maximum and, you know, and Suzuka is one of them, you know, we want to field a team, like we want to do something, either Suzuka or a BSB round, a Cadwell, it, you know, like we need to get Rod back out on a road racer to show everybody like he still got the goods, you know what I'm saying? Cause he was, he was really fast. And I think people like how talented he is real quick side note, we go out and I don't really know Karen that well on a mountain bike. And I didn't know of his motocross background, how like fast he was. We got on a mountain bike and we're all like just going down, whatever. And Kieran, I think was just coming off, he had, you know, his big accident and whatnot. And he was kind of a little thick rod and dude shows up. We have this huge tabletop. We're all riding downhill bikes with Danny Hart. We go to his place up there and we're just having a blast Me, Ellison and him. We get to this little jump, Hart throws a whip over it. And then Kieran just throws just this fat whip out of nowhere. And I'm like, who is this guy? And then that's like kind of how I started to know who Kieran was. Cause he's super humble. He never like never tell you anything, but it's crazy. You know, the success he's had and all the things he's done. And uh, yeah, dude, he's, he's a great guy. I love it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I've just my my brain's ticking now. I need to get Kieran on the Room podcast as well. Get get yes. the whole gang back together. Get Ellison on it as well. Well, that's that's the next uh, yeah. three or four episodes sorted. So uh, <laughs> so that's great. You'll be taking a commission out of me next, James. Uh, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. We got to have side deals. You know what I mean? And this time, we just we got to move and float. <laughs> that's how it works. That's how it works. Well, James, as we've been chatting for for more than half an hour, we, I could chat for hours. You know me with my job, but we we're going to end it there. Um, Huge congrats on on the the championship victory this year. It's a phenomenal uh, season uh, that, that you've had. Uh, you know, winning fifty percent of the races is just inc- insane, absolutely insane. Wish you all the best for the future, and um, hopefully, when all this pandemic gets over, we can catch up trackside and uh, and kick back and relax and uh, and see where your see where your career takes you. Yeah, hundred percent. Thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, like you said, hopefully we can do something uh, at a race or in Europe. Hopefully, where we can kind of you know, mingle there. Um, if not, we need to get you to do a dirt track race in America anytime, you know, you just, you let us know, we'll get you hooked up with, you know, whatever we need to. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for the listeners and everybody. And, uh, yeah, it's been brilliant. Great. And hundred percent, I'm going to go and uh, sort my visa out now because the visa I had as a TV presenter this year didn't work. So I'm going to go and look and see what loopholes I can get into and COVID or not, I'll be there next year for sure. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. Thank you. A big thanks to my guests this week, to Tristan Finocchiaro and to James Rispoli. Great fun talking to those guys. Wish them well for 2021. Make sure you join us next week when I'll be speaking to South African Bjorn Estmond and Kiwi Liam McDonald. 
Vroom. Your weekly motorsport fix podcast is produced by Michael Hill and is edited by Gareth Bouch of Vroom Media. The music is by The Rain Dogs and it's a production of Michael Hill Promotions. <laughs>